This is Unsettled, a true crime podcast. In 1981, Dini was a 14-year-old 8th grader with dreams of being a model. Originally from Saratos, California, she now lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan with her mother Mary, her stepfather John, and her younger brother William. Her biological dad, Dwayne Pyle, still lived in California with Dini's other four siblings, Dwayne, Danny, Denise, and Kathy. Dini was close with all of her siblings, but she was only nine months younger than Kathy, so the two of them were especially close. When Dini still lived in California, Dwayne would pick her up on weekends and during summers, and they would all spend time at the beach and at the park just having lots of fun together. Despite being separated from her dad and several of her siblings, things were still good at home. She had a boyfriend, Larry, who everyone called Guy. She was proud of her grades and told her dad so on the phone. They had been making plans for Deanie to move back to California to live with her dad. Unfortunately, they would never get that chance, because the next phone call Dwayne got was from the police. Dean Marie Pyle Peters, known as Deanie Peters, was missing. On February 5, 1981, Ariadine Herbert's son Paul had a wrestling meet. Ariadine asked her best friend Mary if Paul could ride with her and her six-year-old son William. Deanie, who had babysat for Ariadine in the past, decided to tag along and watch the wrestling meet. The meet was taking place in a local elementary school in the upper level of the gym, with an aerobics dance class taking place in the lower level. The meet had about 25 people attending, and the dance class had about 50. When Ariadine arrived to pick up her son Paul, she saw Mary and Deanie coming down the stairs. Deanie waved and said she was going to the restroom and would be right back. Then she walked across the gym and through the door at approximately 4.45 p.m. When Dini didn't return, the initial thought was maybe she had gone to one of the several extracurricular events going on around the school that evening. A thorough search of the school was conducted. At 6.42 p.m., the police were officially called. Initially, Dini was actually considered to be a runaway, even though she had left all of her personal belongings at home and had just been with her mother. The lead detective on the case, Ken Kleinheckschel, had actually spent five years tracing runaways. Many people considered the idea that she may have gone back to California to live with her dad, and some of her classmates claimed she did not get along well with John, and that her parents disapproved of her dreams of being a model. Dwayne said at the time that he was not asked to come to Grand Rapids, but he later wished that he had. Police did ask him about a van that his youngest son owned and asked if his son may have driven to Grand Rapids to pick up Deanie. However, she clearly made no preparation to run away and never made any contact with her family. So police and her family did not think it was likely that she ran away. After she failed to contact anyone for 24 hours, police started considering other possibilities. One classmate of Deanie's told investigators while under hypnosis that at 5.10 p.m. she saw Deanie walking inside the school with a girl with dark shoulder-length hair. The dark-haired girl has not been identified. It's theorized Deanie may have left the school to smoke a cigarette or maybe to go to a friend's house, although I'm not sure there would have been time for the latter. 
Parents waiting in the parking lot for their children were identified, but none saw anything unusual. No one saw Dini leave the school or near the restroom. Volunteers thoroughly combed the nearby areas and helicopters searched for miles. Yellow ribbons were tied around trees in hopes of Dini's return. Police collected kids from the school in groups to see if they had any information. Ariadine and her husband organized searches for Dini. Two weeks after the disappearance, police had not found any evidence. John was officially ruled out as a suspect. The school custodian, Arthur Diaz, was one of the first main suspects, even being locked in a cell overnight and made to testify in front of a grand jury about a month after the disappearance. Arthur believes he was targeted for being Hispanic. His only criminal record at the time was for drinking and driving. He stated he was cleaning a school office the night of the disappearance and never saw Dini. Police swept Arthur's van, but it was totally clean. The school's incinerator was checked to see if it may have been used to burn a body, but detectives found the incinerator could barely be used to burn a book, much less a body. About a week after the disappearance, Mary and John approached Arthur at the school and he offered his condolences. He said he told them what he told detectives. Three high school-aged boys, one wearing a green and white Forest Hill Central jacket, banged on the locked doors of the school during the wrestling practice. He said he refused to let them in because he didn't recognize them. He said he was never asked to give a description or look at mugshots. Mary and the lead detective said they don't remember having these conversations with Arthur. Arthur passed away in 2013. In March 1981, detectives received a tip that a man had been seen in a doorway watching the aerobics dancers the day of the disappearance. Police tracked this man down, but he said he was just waiting for his girlfriend, who was a part-time music teacher at the school. They were not able to connect him to Dini. However, the witnesses disagreed that this was actually the man they saw that night. According to police, Two friends of Dini's received mysterious phone calls three days apart. One call was made to one of Dini's close family friends around 8.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. The caller didn't say anything. There was only a whimpering sound on the line. When the woman asked if it was Dini, the caller hung up. The second call was made on February 28th to Guy, long-distance collect, from a girl who identified herself as Beth, Guy wasn't home at the time to accept the call, and his mother declined it due to the charges. Angela Franklin, a close friend of Dini's, claimed to also have received multiple hang-up calls, mostly late at night. These could have been crank calls, but police did not rule out that they could have been made by Dini. Police tracked another lead from two women who had picked up a hitchhiker matching Dini's description, Ken and John rushed to the home at 1 in the morning, but sadly, the girl was not Dini. As hunting season approached, police had high hopes a hunter may stumble across something in a field or in the woods, but there was no luck there. Before the one-year anniversary of the disappearance, Ken was so desperate to solve this case, he even tracked a lead from a psychic, which shockingly almost seemed promising at first, but ultimately led nowhere. One theory is that Dini could be Vider Jane Doe, 
Vider was white between the ages of 12 and 20, between 4 foot 6 and 5 foot 6. She was found in Vider, Texas on January 1st, 1984, what was believed to be around a year after her death in 1983. A bluish green and white present or penny company pullover was found nearby. She had short hair about two inches long and may have had braces in the past. Her cause of death may have been decapitation, but her body had decomposed too far by the time it was found to definitively say. The victim's mandible was never found. There isn't a lot to connect these two cases, but the sketches of Vider do look very similar to Dini. By the two-and-a-half-year mark, John and Mary admitted they believed their daughter had died the day she disappeared. The family had moved to Clarkson for business, but then returned to Grand Rapids, saying despite everything, it was still a nice area. Another person of interest in Dini's case was Edward John Zezruski, referred to as Zach. Zach attended Forest Hills Central High School and would go on to murder his wife and two children with a machete in 1994. He's been sitting on death row in Florida ever since. However, it's unlikely he killed Dini because he wasn't living in Michigan at the time of her disappearance. After his retirement, Ken teamed up with Ariadine to do their own investigation. In 2008, the Kent County Metro Cold Case Team was formed thanks to Ariadine's efforts to find out what happened to Dini. A woman interviewed by the press said she was canoeing and drinking with friends on the Flat River in 1989 when a man from Lowell who was in her canoe talked about how he and two others had struck a girl named Dini with a car in a school parking lot. They got scared and hit her body in the trunk, then later buried her along the Flat River. One of those three men was Joseph Falstrom. He was questioned twice by sheriff's detectives in the early 1990s. The story he heard was that Bruce Bunch had talked about Deanie while he was drunk and crying during a kegger near the sod farms off of Grand River Drive near Lowell, and that her body was buried near the old one-room standard schoolhouse about five miles north of Lowell. According to rumors, Joseph claims to have not known Bruce beforehand, Yet in 1983, Bruce married Joseph's cousin, Beth. The schoolhouse had been poked around by police shortly after Dini's disappearance, but nothing was ever found. In May of 2009, an area in Lowell near the schoolhouse was evacuated to search for her body, but again nothing was found. However, Bruce, who was 17 and a high school junior living in Lowell at the time of the disappearance, was one suspect who neither the original investigators, the cold case team, nor the co-op team of Ariadine and Ken could rule out. It was discovered that two days before her disappearance, Dini had a physical altercation with at least two other girls over a boy, possibly Bruce, where they told her to stay away from him. Allegedly, the day of her disappearance, Bruce saw Deanie and drove his car at her to scare her, but his car hit a patch of ice and he accidentally ran over it and killed her. He may have hid her body in the brush and buried it later. 
It was thought she could be buried around the Snow Avenue area, but this area was searched and nothing was found. Bunch reportedly confessed not only to his first and second wives, but also to between 20 and 30 of his friends who reportedly did not believe him. His first wife said he was violent and abusive and would sometimes black out after drinking with no memory of his actions. She claims he once pushed her out of a moving vehicle and broke her ankle, and another time threatened to run her off the road. Bunch died of a heart attack in 2008 without ever being charged or even questioned about Dini's case. In a phone interview before his death, Bruce claims to have had a dream about Dini after seeing her news story on TV, but said he had never actually met her. He said he can't remember details about the dream, only that he told friends about it, and it somehow snowballed into how he had killed Dini, maybe hit her with his car or truck, and then buried her. Here's a quote from Bunch, back when he owned a repair shop. Quote, When I was a kid, I used to have this mental telepathy thing. I could tell things, like when a bird comes into your house and tells you someone's going to die. Everybody just keeps carrying it in different ways, end quote. Police also searched a young Marines camp in Keene Township, not far from the schoolhouse. In addition to that, police have searched an area in Montcalm County and an area near Whitneyville Road Southeast and 92nd Avenue. Over 200 people were interviewed and up to 15 possible burial sites were searched including bringing divers into a shallow pond along Grand River Drive near Lowell and searching a mound of rocks with cadaver dogs. Ken and Ariadine began to learn more about the physical altercation that Dini was involved in a few days prior to her disappearance. They interviewed individuals who were both involved in and witnessed the altercation. In 2008, Ken was subpoenaed for the return of Dini's diary, he says it was returned to Mary, but Mary could not remember receiving it. However, Ken says when he read the diary very closely, nothing useful was found. Ken also alleges that there was poor communication in the initial investigation. Several witnesses claimed they gave statements, but Ken never heard those pieces of information until doing his own investigation after retirement. He says detectives repeatedly took statements, but never filed reports. So if you or anyone you know already spoke to police back in 1981, it could be important that you come forward with that information again. What you're about to hear next is all speculation I found on the WZZM13 Investigates Facebook page for Dini. According to rumors, there were four girls involved in the altercation in the days before Dini's disappearance. Their names were Sue Atkinson, who is now Sue Harmon, Lori, a second Lori, and Debbie, who was Guy's sister. Guy supposedly lied to the papers about his age at the time, claiming he was 15 when he was really 17 and worked a full-time job in Lowell. He was concerned about the age difference between him and Deanie looking bad. Sandra Atkinson, who is Sue's aunt, also knows Naomi Bunch, Bruce's mother. The families both attended Whitneyville Bible Church together. It's suspected that Sue, who still lives in the area to this day, knows what happened and where Dini's body is and is unwilling to cooperate. 
she reportedly failed the polygraph test. Area Dying claimed at one point in her investigation a threat was made against her life. I tracked Sue down and spoke with her to see if she would be willing to answer any questions about the case. As soon as I mentioned I was making a podcast, I saw her face turn, and the second I mentioned Deanie's name, she said no and gestured for me to leave. There may be four or five people out there who know what happened to Deanie. In 2016, the cold case team was disbanded. Deanie's cold case is one of just two in Kent County. In 2017, a P.O. box was opened just for tips about Deanie's case. As of 2021, detectives believe Bunch was the one responsible for Deanie's death, but have never been able to verify his statements. They said even one new credible lead will put police attention back on the case. The Kent County Sheriff's Detectives Unit has faced scrutiny over its handling of older high-profile cases. Sergeant Chet Bush, who claims to have faced roadblocks in the investigation of the 1993 murder of millionaire Robert Freiling, now says he was also unable to track all potential leads in Deanie's case as well. For example, he was unable to fly to Arizona to interview Deanie's mother and stepfather and wasn't given time to interview the original suspect, school custodian Arthur Diaz. But when the press looked into it, they found Arthur living about a mile from the sheriff's department, where he had lived for the past 15 years. The following is the last letter Dwayne ever received from his daughter. Quote, Dear Daddy, I miss you so. I just wish I could be with you. I still haven't gotten your presence yet, but maybe by the time you get this, I'll get it. Oh, Daddy, you're going to be so proud of me when I tell you how I'm doing in school. I got two Bs, one A-plus on my math test. Then I got two Bs and one A on my science test. I have a big picture of me for you this year. I hope you like it. Well, Dad, how was your new year? How was your Christmas? Mine was okay, I guess, but it brought back a lot of memories of you and my brothers and sisters. My boyfriend wants to meet you. His name is Larry, but everybody calls him Guy. Well, Daddy, let's start keeping in touch better. I miss you so much. I just wish I could see you. Love your daughter, Deanie. P.S. Take care of yourself. End quote. Dwayne passed away in 2017. Mary and John have moved to Arizona, where they still have a bedroom set up for Deanie, recreated exactly the way she left it in 1981. They desperately want to know what happened to Deanie, and most importantly, where her body is. Deanie was declared legally dead in 1991. The word unknown appears on her death certificate 15 times. The statute of limitations on disposing of a body has expired in Deanie's case. There is also a $25,000 cash reward for any credible information about what happened or where Deanie's remains are buried. If you have any information, please contact Crime Stoppers to remain completely anonymous at 1-800-SPEAK-UP or the Kent County Sheriff's Department at 616-632-6100. This podcast was written and produced by me, Nikki, music by Juan Sanchez. 
If you like this podcast and want more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review.